Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. We've been going over, off and on in sermons, beliefs of the original Catholic Church, beliefs of the original Christian Church. And I'd like to go over several different ones today, uh, starting with uh, uh, tithes and offerings. I'm going to also talk about uh, crosses, icons, uh, Marianism, uh, immortality, heaven, God's purpose, etc. And so basically, uh, this book is a, a guideline or outline. By the way, this book, or any other book we hold up, or I hold up, is free at the ccog.org website. Just go to www.ccog.org. There's a literature tab under books and booklets, and you can find this and other literature I might hold up. But anyway, this sermon is based on some stuff that's in this book, which is based on what? The Bible and historical information. Tithing is discussed with many specifics in the Old Testament. The terms tithe, tithing, and giving a tenth occur uh, uh, over ten times in the New Testament. Occur, excuse me, occur ten times in the New Testament. So it's also a New Testament subject. Multiple tithes were commanded in the Bible in Leviticus 27.30, Deuteronomy 12.17-18, Deuteronomy 26.12-15. And historical accounts show that they were paid, including, by the way, in a book that we don't accept as canonical, but the Greco-Romans do, called the Book of Tobit. It talks about paying multiple tithes in Tobit 1, uh, verses 6 through 8. As far as tithes go, Jesus confirmed the tithes should be paid. Now, during this, during this sermon series, I'm quoting uh, a Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox approved uh, versions of the Bible, translation of the Bible almost all the time. Sometimes there's some others, but rarely. This particular one from Matthew 23, 23, I'm reading this from the New American Bible uh, Revised Edition, which I got from the American uh, Catholic Bishops uh, Conference website. They have it online. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is what Jesus said. You pay tithes, that's plural, of mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier things of the law, judgment, mercy, and fidelity. But these you should have done without neglecting the other. And certainly, uh, justice, mercy, and fate are uh, weightier matters of law, but paying tithes was something endorsed by Jesus that's supposed to be done. And the Church of God in Jerusalem would have taught tithes there until uh, the rise of uh, Marcus the Latin in about 135 A.D. Early Christians tithed, and it takes faith in order to do so. Uh, I want to read something from uh, Callier's Encyclopedia. Tithes generally defines a tenth part of fruits and profits justly acquired, owed to God in recognition of supreme dominion, and paid to the ministers of region, uh, adopted in principle by the Christian Church from Apostolic times. The Catholic Encyclopedia also said tithes were paid. Uh, I'd like to read something from uh, an Antiochian source. It seems like it's related to be to the Eastern Orthodox. This is from uh, the third century. It says. Set by part offerings and tithes and the first fruits to Christ, the true high priest, and to his ministers, the priests and Levites now are the presbyters and deacons. So this pointed to the idea that even the Greco Romans were uh, tithing in the uh, third century. 
Now, the Greco-Roman saint and doctor of their church by the name of Jerome, he recorded that there were people in the uh, early 4th centuries, and uh, late 4th century, early 5th centuries, who claimed to descend from the Church of God, who had fled to Pella from Jerusalem. And Jerome reported that these Nazarenes, uh, they kept the old law and had Judeo-Christian practices. And such a group would have tithed. Now, even Augustine or Augustine, depending on how to pronounce it, of Hippo, uh, also considered a saint by the Greco-Roman churches, said, it's a duty to pay tithes, and whoever refuses to pay them takes what belongs to another. Historical accounts show that multiple tithes were endorsed by Christians in the Middle Ages who gave one-tenth to the church, one-tenth to pay for church festivals, which actually would keep for themselves to spend them when they went to, let's say, the Feast of Tabernacles. And two out of every seven years, there was an additional tithe that was for the poor. And this is from uh, George Morell, who is a Waldensian elder. It can take a lot of faith to tithe, particularly in difficult times. God's Word promises uh, blessings to those who do. I didn't have this in the... Uh, in the book, but I want to go to Malachi 3. Actually, I point to Malachi 3, I just didn't uh, quote it in the book. So this will be from the uh, New King James Version of the Bible. Malachi 3, starting in verse uh, 8, it's, uh, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And that's basically what Augustine of Hippo was saying. You're cursed with a curse, You've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. So this is a faith test. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings, that will not be room enough to receive it. And God explains other things he will do if you'll tithe. And it takes faith to tithe, but a lot of people don't have faith to tithe. They come up with all kinds of reasons that they want, don't want to believe it. They won't do it. As far as faith goes, I'm looking forward. We have another booklet. In this case, a booklet called Faith for Those God Has Called and Chosen. And yes, it takes faith to tithe. It takes faith to live as a Christian, by the way. We've got another booklet called Christians Ambassadors to the Kingdom of God, going through more information about how Christians should live. Again, any booklet or book I hold up is available, except for the Bible I hold up, it's available free at the ccog.org website. Anyway, we in the Continuing Church of God still practice tithing as well as giving of offerings. But what about crosses and icons? Well, the reality is early Christians did not have crosses or icons. But this started to change by some of the Greeks in the third century and was adopted by many of the Greco-Romans in the 4th century after being influenced by the pagan sun worshiper uh, Constantine. Now what does the Bible, particularly the New Testament, say about crosses? Well, actually, not as much as most people think. Why? Because it's not certain that that word is ever even in the New Testament. Basically because there's a word from the Greek that has been mistranslated. The word is called staros, which means pole or stake. I'm going to read from Biblesoft's uh, new exhaustive 
Strong's number in concordance with expanded Greek Hebrew dictionary. Staros, or Storos, from the base of another word, a stake or post, as to set upright, specifically a pole. Now I'm going to read from uh, uh, Bauer and Danker's uh, Greek English lexicon, lexicon of the New Testament. Storos, upright pointed stake or pale, a pole to be placed in the ground and used for capital punishment. Every time, according to Strong's Concordance, this word, which is number 4716, is used, it comes, it's staros. It, staros, it doesn't mean cross. Well, then some say, well, what about the word crucify or crucifixion or something like that? Doesn't that mean being killed on a cross? Well, that's how people interpret this in English. But the two Greek words that were translated as crucify in the New Testament come from storos, and they mean to impale. One is Strong's word 4717, uh, storo, to impale. That's from uh, BibleSoft. And uh, 40, the word 4957, susturo, sorry, my pronunciation, to impale. Okay. Now there's a third word that's once uh, improperly translated as crucify in some New Testament translations, but it just means to kill again. Got nothing to do with a cross. Neither the apostles nor their early followers, and they would know what the Koine Greek meant at the time. They knew better, more than people who are currently alive. They ever, there's no evidence that they carry crosses, wore crosses, honored a cross. And now modern scholars know the word uh, storus or storus means soros means stake, but because of various traditions, they decided to switch it to cross. And even in Greek, now the word storus, which used to mean stake, now they say it means cross, even though it didn't back then. Now, in the second half of the second century, there was a Greek writer who's uh, against Christians. His name was Lucian. He wrote something called The Death of, of Peregrinus. He wrote this about Christians. That one whom they still worship, who was impaled because he brought form a new form of initiation of the word. Now, he used this Greek word called anascolopisian, which means to impale. Impalement implies a single stake. And that was understood by many even over a century after Jesus' death. Now, I want to read something that Polycarp of Smyrna wrote. Now, Polycarp, one who's uh, a statue that somebody came up with, supposed to be him here, or some version of him. Uh, he was appointed to be bishop or pastor, overseer, by the Apostle John. He wrote around 135 AD, we think. Let us continually persevere in our hope in the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He, like others, referred to Jesus uh, being killed on the tree. Now I'm going to go to the New Testament, Acts 5, verse 30. I'm going to read this from the New Jerusalem Bible, Roman Catholic translation. Acts 5, 30. It was God of our ancestors who raised up Jesus, whom you executed by hanging on a tree. 
Now let's go to Acts 10, verse 39. This will be from the uh, Orthodox Standard Bible, which is the same as the New King James or the New Testament. Acts 10, 39. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Let's go to Acts 13, verse 29. Also from the OSB or the New King James. Acts 13, 29. But now when they had fulfilled all those written concerning him, they took him down, that's Jesus, from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. What about Peter? Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, 2, we'll read verse 24. This will be from the Dewey Rames Bible, Roman Catholic translation. 1 Peter 2.24 Who his own self bore our sins in his body upon the tree that we are being dead to sins should live to justice by whose stripes you were healed. And I want to go uh, to Galatians uh, 3 starting verse 13 uh, also from the uh, uh, OSB. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now the Greek word, uh, let's see how I say that, julan, translated as a tree above, basically means a tree, a stick, or a piece of timber. And as far as uh, Galatians uh, 3 goes, That, that is a reference to actually Deuteronomy uh, 21, verse 23. And the Hebrews were not crucifying people on crosses back then. Now, the Greco-Romans have this paper. They, they renamed the paper from Melito of Sardis. Now, Melito of Sardis was a Church of God leader in the late 2nd century. And they, they named it the Discourse on the Cross. But that's not what Melito wrote in this discourse. He wrote, God, who is from God, the Son, who is from the Father, Jesus Christ, the King forevermore, he that bore up the earth was born up on a tree. The Lord was subject to ignominy with naked body. God put to death the King of Israel slain. And he also wrote, Melito wrote, he who was hanged on the tree. This is he who took a bodily form of the virgin and was hanged upon the tree and was buried within the earth and suffered not dissolution. Who put on bodily form in the virgin who was hanged upon the tree? Who was buried in the earth, who rose from the place of the dead and was sent at the height of heaven and sits in the right hand of the Father. He that bore up the earth was born upon on a tree. So we see that you know Melito was repeatedly saying Jesus was born on a tree. Early Christians recognized that Jesus was killed on a, was killed on a tree. Now in the, around 135 AD in Jerusalem there was a group of compromised uh, Roman supporting people who called themselves Christians 
that they wrote down what they thought were gospel accounts. Yet according to a later source, quote, in all this there is no mention of the cross or crucifix. So even Greco-Romans didn't have it back then. Now I want to read an accusation against Christians. It was written around 197 uh, AD. This is supposedly an argument between a heathen named Solicius and a Someone claimed to be a Christian called Octavius. Why have they, the Christians, no altars, no temples, no acknowledged images? This is from Minucius, Octavius. Well, if a cross was used a lot as a symbol, or there are other sacred images or icons for Christians, this would not have been the case. They wouldn't have said that about them. And the same also goes for statues are supposed to be Jesus. And as far as fixed altars goes, this didn't become a, a Greco-Roman practice until the 4th century. Now, according to historical records, no real Christians prior to the late 2nd or early 3rd centuries are ever uh, described as carrying an idol, having images of worship services, or wearing a cross. Now, even though some apostates started to do that around this time. Now, some have suggested that the catacombs and various funeral-related items for Christians prove an early acceptance of the cross. But that's not the case. And by the way, somebody challenged me on this once years ago, a while back, a long time ago. And my wife Joyce and I have been to the catacombs in Rome and in Cappadocia area. Uh, so trying to tell me if there's all kinds of proof there. Well, I was there. <laughs> no, there's, there's no proof of that. Now, some have said, uh, they pointed to letter X. Well, we call it an X, although the uh, Greeks call it a chi. And various other symbols of certain uh, uh, Christian documents or artifacts. And those are proofs of, of the crosses, or proof that a lot of people accepted crosses. But that's not the case. I want to read something from the Roman Catholic scholar and priest, uh, uh, Bellamino Bigatti. Here's what he wrote. The doctrine of millenarianism being widespread left many iconographical traces as a sign of millenarianism that's believing in a 1000 year millennial reign of Jesus Christ also called Kiliism we find the Greek letter Chi Kiliism is C-H-I so we could pronounce it Chiliism initial for the word Chilial thousand studying funeral monuments we find ourselves face to face with very many signs which lead us to millenarian iconographic repertory. So in other words, when they look at how early Christians were buried, any symbols had to do with the millennium, which Christians experience after the first resurrection. It's nothing to do with a, a cross. Now ancient artifacts show various other things, such as a, a, an Upsilon Omega, Upsilon Ta, Upsilon Chi. And here's a report from a scholar. They were all in relation to the doctrine of the Chiliad or the, or the millennium. There also this, the uh, symbol sigma, which kind of is like this, was also sometimes used as a symbol of the pre-millennial resurrection of the saints. And it's this sigma signal symbol stood for the seventh millennium. The pre-millennial resurrection, coinciding with Jesus' return, was and still should be 
the chief hope of Christians, and that's why you saw these things as symbols, burial symbols. Now, interesting, icons and crosses themselves were normally discouraged by uh, Greco-Roman uh, leaders up until the 4th century. But uh, several factors uh, started to occur with this. I want to read uh, 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 something on this. This is from uh, Stonehill College. It's called, it's called uh, Aurelian Soul and Roman Identity. It was published in 2019. During the 3rd and 4th centuries, the Roman Empire saw a proliferation of solar cults as the sun became a favored patron and protector of many emperors. Perhaps the most noteworthy turning point was Roman Emperor Aurelian's elevation of Sol, that's S-O-L, as the chief focal point of the state cult, which would prove even more significant decades later under Constantine. Furthermore, contemporary literary accounts described the unconquerable sun as a restorer of order and a god of rebirth and renewal, making him a powerful symbol of unification during a turbulent era. Now, Emperor Constantine himself had a vision of the sun god Sol in the grove of Apollo in Gaul, it's like southern France, in 310. Then in 312, he claimed to have a vision of a spear with a bar over top of it, that he said it kind of looked like a cross. He interpreted this to mean his uh, forces were supposed to use crosses as a symbol to kill under. Now, since he had been a follower of the Mithraic cult, which is militaristic, and it used crosses, this seemed fine to him. And I should point out that even after his so-called so conversion to Christianity uh, in 312, about uh, 25 years later, he was intentionally buried in a grave originally dedicated to the sun god. And according to uh, something published at the Vatican in 2014, his Constantine's 337 burial still had sun god elements. Now anyway, after he won this battle in 312, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, Constantine prepared an arch which contained, quote, no recognizable Christian symbols, but instead portrayed Sol Invictus, whose image occurs four times. This Catholic book says, the triumphal arch completed in 315 was naturally decorated with carvings which corresponded to the ideas of a pagan senate. Now, real Christian leaders do not naturally decorate with pagan images and similar icons. Yet Constantine kept doing that till at least 322 because he had images of the sun god on his coins that late. Now Constantine's uh, acceptance of icons that he claimed to be Christian, like crosses, that proved pretty popular with the Greeks. And some, some Latins, though, had problems with it later. Matter of fact, centuries later, it took until 843 for... Uh, the Roman Church to fully accept idols and icons, and the Eastern Orthodox considered getting the Roman Church to accept these icons was, was quote, the triumph of orthodoxy, which, of course, proves it was not part of the original Catholic Church. Now, crosses and then crucifixes became popular in the 5th and 6th century. I'm going to read stuff from the Catholic Encyclopedia now about that. 
Although in the 5th century the cross began to appear on public monuments, it was not for a century afterwards that the figure on the cross was shown, and not until close, not until the close of the 5th or even the middle of the 6th century did it appear without disguise. A very important monument belonging to the beginning of the 3rd century shows the crucifixion openly. This would seem to contradict what we've just said above, but it should be remembered that this is the work of a, a pagan, not Christian hands and therefore has no real value as proof among purely Christian works. So in other words, in the uh, third century, some pagan did some kind of a crucifix, and uh, eventually this caught on, but probably because of Constantine, but they're saying, no, it was until after Constantine this stuff became accepted. Now there was resistance to uh, crosses by some who had uh, Church of God backgrounds, or affiliation, the Catholic Encyclopedia reports, quote, the Cathari renounced priestly vestments, altars, and crosses as idolatrous. They called the cross the mark of the beast and declared it had no more virtues than a ribbon for binding hair. And uh, the late uh, Isaac Newton, who was not part of the Church of God, by the way, he talked about the mark of the beast, and he said the mark was three crosses. <laughs> uh, anyway, now some Roman Catholics have indicated that an image or perhaps mark of the beast could have something to do with one of Constantine's crosses. There's a priest uh, by the name of uh, Uchede in the 19th century talked about Antichrist going to make all bear a sign on their right hand or their forehead. What will this sign alone be? We'll find out in time. But some have said it could be for, uh, formed out of the Greek letters chi and rho interlaced, which resembles the number of Christ. And it was a chi-rho cross is one of the things that uh, Emperor Constantine uh, promoted. And the, we've got Catholic sources saying this could be the, the, the mark of the Antichrist. Here's another Catholic source. This is from Countess Francesca Di Bilante, who died in 1935. Many in this land will carry the hook cross on their head and breast, not suspecting that this is a sign of Satan. And one of their saints, a saint by the name of Hildegard of Bingham, in the 12th century, said the mark of the Antichrist will be a symbol of baptism. Well, Catholic baptism involves the sign of the cross, and so it may be that the, uh, some type of cross will be a mark of the beast. Now, there was a stigmatic uh, a Roman Catholic by the name of Marie-Julie Jahaini who claimed to see apparitions of Mary. She stated the following prayer needed to be said to protect during times of great calamities. I hail thee, I adore thee, I embrace thee, O adorable cross of my Savior. Protect us, keep us, save us. Jesus loved thee so much by his example. I love thee by the holy image. Calm my fears. I can only feel peace and confidence. Now the Bible never indicates that Jesus loved the cross, nor that anybody should adore or venerate it. Mary Julie uh, Jehaney also claimed that blessed wax candles were necessary for protection from a coming three days of darkness, as they'd be the only things that would give light then. Well, it's possible we could see three days of darkness again like there was in Exodus uh, 10, uh, 21 to 23. Uh, there's no scriptural reason to think we need to rely on blessed candles for this. 
Now that Marie Julie Jehaney claimed the Virgin Mary stated, Always have ready and at hand your objects of protection, your blessed wax candles, your medals, your pictures, and holy objects from which flow all blessings. It is not possible that Jesus' mother Mary said that. The Bible teaches that uh, blessings flow from God. You can see that's in Genesis 49.29, Deuteronomy 28.2. And a protection comes from God. 2 Samuel 22.3, Psalm 62.5-8. It doesn't come from physical objects. Nor were these physical items part of the original Christian or Catholic faith. And so we, the continuing Church of God, don't believe we need to we should be doing that. Now that being said, we don't believe that the use of crosses by civic organizations like the Red Cross or on various government documents should be avoided by Christians. Uh, we do, however, not think they're a true Christian symbol. Now I'd like to read something from something called Second Clement. This is one of the so-called writings of the so-called Apostolic Fathers. It says, For the Lord says, Every way my name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And again, woe unto them by reason of whom my name is blasphemed. Wherein is it blasphemed? And that you don't do the things I desire. Well, original Catholics didn't venerate crosses, images of Jesus, or other icons for religious purposes. You know, it says in Second Chronicles 2, 8, you don't have to go there, heaven of heavens cannot contain him. So it's wrong to think that God can be represented by any statue or icon. Uh, and the use of them has caused the true Christian faith to be blasphemed, particularly amongst, for example, the Muslims. I mentioned Mary, and I want to talk a little bit, and candles, I want to talk a little about Marianism and uh, uh, candles and veneration of saints. Now, the original Christian church was respectful of Jesus' mother Mary in the few writings that mention her. For example, you can see something about her in fragments of uh, Papias, who was a Church of God leader. Anyway, but Mary was not venerated like modern Greco-Romans venerator. You say, you're just making this up. No, I'm going to read from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is under an article called Devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Devotion to our Blessed Lady. We do not meet with any clear traces of the cultus of the Blessed Virgin in the first Christian centuries. The earliest unmistakable examples of the worship, we use this word, of course, in a relative sense, of the saints is connected with the veneration paid to martyrs who gave their lives to the faith. The same idea was derived from the cult of angels, which, while pre-Christian in origin, so in other words, pagan origin, seems to have been only a sequel of some such developments that men turned, in, turned to implore the intercession of the Blessed Virgin. Evidence regarding the popular practice of early centuries is almost entirely lacking. So in other words, first few centuries of Christianity, there was no proof people were venerating Mary or praying to her and that kind of stuff. Evidence of certain apocryphal writing, notably that of the so-called Gospel St. James, uh, also called the Proto-Evangelion, and certain interpolated, interpolated passages found in the Sibylline Oracles, Passages which probably date from the third century show an equal preoccupation with the dominant role played by the Blessed Virgin in the work of redemption. So, in other words, they're saying, in this, "Okay, this false gospel of James, which they say James didn't write, kind of talks about it. 
This seemed to come pop up in the second century. Then the sibling oracles, the sibyls were kind of women who uh, uh, the pagans actually went to to find out what was going to happen in terms of prophecy. Uh, and they say that that started to talk about Marianism in the third century. Anyway, continuing the Catholic Encyclopedia, the existence of the obscure sects of the sect of the Collyridians, whom Saint Epiphanius died 403, denounces for their sacrificial offering of cakes to Mary. Epiphanius laid down the rule, let Mary be held in honor, let the Father and Son, Holy Ghost be adored, but let no one adore uh, Mary. Yet, even though Epiphanius, one of their saints that don't end up adoring Mary, people ended up doing it. Now, I want to read something else from uh, another uh, Catholic source. The Hail Mary did not exist as we pray it today. The word Jesus was not added until the 14th century, and the second half of the prayer came still later. So don't think this Hail Mary thing is original, because I know I've read Catholic priests say, oh, it's original, it's from the Bible. No, it was uh, not something people were doing. Now I'd like to read something basically related to candles. This is from the Greco-Roman bishop by the name of uh, Lactanius. He wrote, The same blindness everywhere oppresses wretched men. For as they do not know who is the true God, so they know not what constitutes true worship. Therefore they kindle lights to him, as though he were in darkness. But if they were able to conjecture or to conceive in their minds that those heavenly goods are, the greatness of which we cannot imagine, while we're still encompassed with an earthly body, they would at once know that they're most foolish in their empty offices, with their empty offices. Or if they would contemplate the heavenly light, which we can call the sun, they will at once perceive how God has no need of their candles, who himself has given so clear and bright a light for the use of man. So he was objecting to candles using uh, as part of worship, and pretty much every Orthodox church, I can, Eastern Orthodox church I can remember going into, they have candles there you can buy and light, and most Roman Catholic churches I've seen this as well. And this is done by Greco-Romans for Jesus, Mary, various saints, and other reasons. It was shortly after the rise of Emperor Constantine the candles were uh, adopted by uh, Greco-Romans. And I want to read this also from the Catholic Encyclopedia. We need not shrink from admitting that candles like incense and lustral water were commonly employed in pagan worship and in the rites paid to the dead. But the church from a very early period took them into her service, just as she adopted many other things indifferent to themselves, which seemed proper to enhance the splendor of religious ceremonies. Eusebius speaks of pillars of wax, which Constantine transformed night into day. So Constantine, they're saying him, he, he used wax, he was using candles, some type of candles, some kind of light. So this is 4th century stuff. Then it says, not to speak of the decree of the Spanish Council of Elvira, around 300, which seems to condemn as abuse some superstitious burning candles. So around 300 A.D., there was a Spanish council in El, Elvira, as I would say in Spanish, or Elvira, as I would say in English, 
They condemned use of candles, yet not too long after they picked it up. Candles were and are commonly used to burn before shrines which the faithful want to show special devotion. The candle burning its life out before a statue is no doubt felt in some ill-defined ways to be, a, be symbolic of prayer and sacrifice. So people think they're doing good, but they're not. So we do not light candles for Jesus or Mary or that kind of stuff. And we don't believe it's biblically proper to, quote, enhance the splendor of religious ceremonies by adopting paganism or pagan practices. I want to read a warning about that from the Bible. This is about to be from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Starting verse 28. This will be from the Dewey Rames Bible. God's word says, Observe and hear all the things that I command thee, that it may be well with thee and thy children after thee forever, when you shall do what is good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord God. When the Lord your God shall have destroyed before your face the nations which you go to possess, and you possess them and dwell in their land, beware lest thou imitate them after they are destroyed at thy coming unless thou seek after their ceremonies, saying, As these nations worship their gods, so will I worship. So don't say, oh, this is really great how they worship their god. It adds splendor. We should do this. I says, don't do that. Thou shalt not do in like manner to the Lord thy God, for they have done to their gods all abominations of the Lord abhors, offering their sons and daughters and burning them with fire. Would I command thee that only thou do to the Lord? Add, neither add anything nor diminish. You know, when pagans are converted, you're not supposed to take their practices and chain them to the, to the true God. And we don't endorse that. Now I want to read something from a Roman uh, Catholic uh, historian, uh, Durant. He wrote, Paganism survived by an often indulgent church. An intimate and trustful worship of saints replaced the cult of pagan gods. Statues of Isis and Horus were renamed Mary and Jesus. The Roman Lupercalia and the Feast of Purification of Isis became the Feast of Nativity. The Saturnalia was replaced by Christmas celebrations. The Thoralia by Pentecost, the ancient festival of the dead by All Saints Day, All Souls Day, and the resurrection of Atis by the resurrection of Christ. Pagan altars were rededicated to Christian heroes. Incense, lights, flowers, processions, vestments, hymns, which had pleased the people in the older cults, were domesticated and cleansed from their ritual of the church. And the harsh slaughter of the living victim was sublimated to the spiritual sacrifice of the mass. So in other words, what he's saying is, yeah, his church, the Roman Catholic Church, picked up paganism, but decided, okay, we probably shouldn't be killing animals or people anymore, but we'll say we are going to sacrifice Jesus all the time instead. So that'll make those who think we have to have sacrifices help happy. And this is what we're going to do without actually killing anybody. Then Durant says, or writes, Soon people and priests would use the sign of the cross as a magic incantation to expel or drive away demons. Now we mentioned Christmas. Well, December 25th was the birthday of the sun god Mithras. Sol and Emperor Constantine promoted that date as the birth of Christ. And now it's commonly accepted. Anyway, we do not believe we should accept... Uh, 
uh, pagan practices, and they were not beliefs of the original Christian, the original Catholic Church. What about confession and penance? Well, the Bible clearly teaches repentance, Acts 2.38, but what about oral confession and penance? So let's go to uh, James 5, verse 16. I'll read this in the Dewey Rames Bible. Confess, therefore, your sins one to another, and pray for one another, that you may be saved. For the continual prayer of a just man avails much. Now notice that is not a, con a command to confess your sins to a clergy or ministry. Now it's not like you should never mention any problems you have to a minister, okay? Uh, but this was not a command in the Bible to confess everything you've done wrong uh, to a priest, which is what uh, you're told to do if you're, for example, Roman Catholic. I was told to do that when I was younger. Now, let's go to 1 John chapter 1. I'll also read from the Dewey Rames Bible here. This also is another time, this is the other time that the Bible talks about confessing sins. So let's see what the Apostle John wrote. 1 John 1, starting verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he also is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin, and to cleanse us from all iniquity. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So this does say Christians are supposed to confess sins, and Jesus is going to forgive them. But there's no talk about penance here or in James 5, 8, 16. Now, there's a first century letter to the Corinthians, often called First Clement, and it teaches something similar about confession and repentance. So, this is uh, going to be from chapter 7, as well as chapters 52 and 57. So, this gives an idea of what uh, first century Christians, how they viewed this. Let us look steadfastly to the blood of Christ and see how precious that blood is to God which has been shed for our salvation, has set the grace of repentance before the whole world. Let us turn to every age that has passed and learn that from generation to generation, the Lord has granted a place of repentance to all such as would be converted unto him. Noah preached repentance, and as many as listened to him were saved. The Lord, brethren, stands in need of nothing. He desires nothing of anyone except Confession be made to him. So this understanding in the first century was confession of sins was to be made to God when you are praying. You therefore who laid the foundations of this sedition submit yourselves to the presbyters and receive correction so as you can repent. So what it's saying there is that yeah, if you're doing something that the, the ministry knows is wrong, they'll tell you to do something so you can repent. It's not saying you need to go and uh, confess all your sins to them. Now, in the second century, Ignatius of Antioch, who is considered to be a saint by the Greco-Roman Protestants, as well as the Church of God, wrote, And as many as shall, in the exercise of repentance, return to the unity 
of the church, these two shall belong to God, that they may live according to Jesus Christ. Ignatius was teaching that those who left the church should be allowed in if they repent. That's not the same as teaching that individuals who left the faith have to fulfill some kind of uh, prescribed penance. Now, it turns out the Roman bishop Callistus was a factor in getting more uh, involvement of the clergy. And the Catholic Encyclopedia uh, wrote the following. Pope Callistus, 218-222, published in his preemptory edict in which he declares, quote, I forgive the sins both of adultery and fornication to those who have done penance. Now, because of Callistus's degrees and actions, Tertullian, after he discontinued a fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church, sarcastically dubbed Callistus our good Pontifex Maximus. That was considered to be an insult. Uh, the, the bishops of Rome didn't take the title of Pontifex Maximus until the end of the 4th century. Uh, and Callistus himself was uh, corrupt, by the way. He allowed uh, wealthy people to have women to get abortions, etc., and did various other things that were wrong, and he was blasted for this. And the Church of Rome realizes that Callistus was corrupt, but he was the one, supposedly, who came up with uh, confession and penance, or at least with penance. Now, according to uh, the Greco-Roman uh, saint uh, and bishop Augustine, uh, Oral confession to a priest was not required practice in the 4th or 5th century. Instead, he advised people to pray to God instead for forgiveness. Here's what uh, he wrote. This is in his Sermon to the Catechumens on the Creed, chapter 15. Forgiveness of sins. You have this article of the Creed perfectly in you when you receive baptism. For the sake of all sins was baptism provided. For the sake of light sins, without which we cannot be, was prayer provided. What has the prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Once for all, we have had washing and baptism. Every day we have washing in prayer. So again, he's not saying you have to go confess to a priest. Uh, now, the Catholic Encyclopedia has pointed to John 20, verse 23, as proof that oral uh, confession to priests was supposed to be made. So I want to go and read that passage. And I'm going to read it starting in verse 21. You can go there and follow along. This is John 20, verse, uh, verses 21 to 23. And I'm going to read this from the New Jerusalem Bible, a Roman Catholic translation. And he, that's Jesus, said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After saying this, he breathed on him and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Now what's the problem with citing this as proof private confession before the priest started from the beginning? Well, for one, no early leader in the Church of God, the Greco-Roman Catholic churches believe this meant that Christians were supposed to confess their sins to a priest who would prescribe them penance. This is clear from early church history as well as from the current catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, 
before getting to, to that, I want to go into how the Church of God has historically uh, explained uh, John 20, uh, verses, uh, verse 23. This is from uh, Correspondence Letter 032. Some try to use John 20, 23 to prove that persons in ecclesiastical offices have the power to forgive sins. This verse reads, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. New King James Version. However, it does not mean that mere men can actually forgive sins in a spiritual sense. God alone can forgive sins. Mark uh, 2, 7-10, Luke 5, 21-24. Christ spoke these words to his future, future apostles in the context of church authority he was giving them. See John 20, 21, which I just read. The power to disfellowship those who were dissenters or heretics. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, 1 Timothy 1, 20. And to bring them back to the congregation. And that is how early professors of Christ seem to understand God's, the church's authority, along with the fact that the church had the right to mark dissenters, as you can see in Romans 6, 17. And that's what Ignatius of Antioch was talking about. And he was an early 2nd century Christian, probably started, maybe he's a Christian from the 1st century, probably. Anyway, forgiveness was allowed regarding marking somebody or disfellowshipping them. Despite this, the Council of Trent in the 16th century declared uh, uh, the following. Canon 6. If anyone denies either the sacramental confession was instituted or is necessary to salvation of divine right or says that the manner of confessing secretly to a priest alone which the church has ever observed from the beginning and does observe is alien from the institution and the command of Christ and is a human invention, let him be an anathema. Okay, so that sounds really strong. I mentioned the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I happen to have a copy of it. Uh, and here's what item 1447 says. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you can go to vatican.va and find it. You can find this online. Here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, number 1447. Over the centuries, the concrete form in which the Church has exercised this power received from the Lord has varied considerably. It's got to do with confession. During the first centuries, the reconciliation of Christians who had committed particularly grave sins after their baptism, for example, idolatry, murder, or adultery, was tied to very rigorous discipline, according to which penitents had to do public penance for their sins, often for years before receiving reconciliation. Uh, well, that wasn't actually done by true Christians, but again, notice it's something for it takes years, as opposed to, if you go to confession as a Roman Catholic, which I did as a child, uh, they just tell you to recite certain prayers a bunch of times. It doesn't take years, it takes you know, minutes. Anyway, to this order of penitents, which concerned only grave sins, one was only rarely admitted, and in certain regions, only once in a lifetime. During the seventh century, Irish missionaries, inspired by the Eastern monastic tradition, took to continental Europe the private practice of penance, which does not require public prolonged completion of penitential works before reconciliation with the church. 
So what you see now happened in the 7th century, even though the Council of Trent, which is from the 16th century, said, no, this is from the beginning. It wasn't. Anyway, continuing with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. From that time on, the sacrament has been performed in secret between penitent and priest. This new practice envisioned the possibility of repetition and so opened the way to regular frequenting of this sacrament. It allowed the forgiveness of grave sins and venial sins to be integrated into one sacramental celebration. Its main lies this form of penance that the church has practiced down to this day. So obviously it changed. The Council of Trent says if you say it was not original, you're an anathema. But those are, those are the facts. Now, if you're uh, an anathema, you're not to be saved. One question is, if you are saved, you're saved for what? Some feel that uh, eternity is going to be spent primarily gazing upon the face of God. This is called the beatific vision. Now, the Bible does say, in the book of Psalms, uh, 41, uh, 41st Psalm, verse 12, that we'll see God's face forever. But the way the Greco-Romans and Protestants teach the uh, uh, Christian reward is not how the Bible uh, teaches. Now, let me read something from the New World Encyclopedia about the beatific vision. Beatific vision is a term in Catholic theology describing the direct perception of God enjoyed by those who are in heaven, imparting supreme happiness or blessedness. In this view, Humans' understanding of God while alive is necessarily indirect, while the beatific vision is direct and immediate. Thomas Aquinas explained the vision, beatific vision was the ultimate goal of human existence after physical death. Aquinas' formulation, and Aquinas is considered a saint, by the way, and doctor of their church, of Catholic Roman Church, of beholding God in heaven parallels Plato's description of the beholding of the good in the world of the forms which is not possible in physical body. The philosophy of Plato hints at the concept of beatific vision in the allegory of the cave, which appears in the Republic Book 7. And for Plato, the good appears to correspond to God in uh, Christianity. St. Uh, Cyprian of Carthage, one of their saints, third century wrote, the saved seeing God in the kingdom of heaven. How great uh, will your glory and happiness be allowed to see God and honored and sharing the joy of salvation, eternal uh, light from Christ, your Lord and God. In the 13th century, Aquinas, uh, uh, again, that's the ultimate goal of uh, human life. And so this was not an original view either. And basically those who believe it think that uh, this is the end goal, the hope of salvation, and that seeing God's going to fulfill them with uh, his happiness or their own happiness. Now the Church of God does not agree with that. Here's something published in the Good News magazine, 1974. If eternity is to be spent gazing blissfully into God's face or having our every wish immediately fulfilled, as many religions teach, after a few months, or maybe a few octillion years, doesn't matter, life would get boring. And once it got boring, it would be sickeningly, fiendishly terrifying. 
But our eternal Father has a better idea. He's designed a plan which eternity will not grow progressively more boring. But as unbelievable as it sounds, eternity will grow, will grow progressively more exciting, more scintillating, and more enjoyable as each eon follows eon. Another Church of God uh, writer, this is in February 1979, wrote, that God who put this world together did so with a plan in mind. The plan was not the hopeless nirvana of one major religion of the world which promises to become an unconscious part of the great whole with nothing, no worries, no anything, which will have no individual conscious forever. It's not the bliss of slumbering in a hammock uh, or uh, just uh, walking around with a halo uh, or having being fed by voluptuous maidens forever. The promise with the followers of Allah are assured. Uh, strumming on a harp which seems to be promises the majority of Protestant groups. And it's certainly not the promise to finally be able to look in the face of God and appreciate the beatific vision, whatever that is, as a promise of those who follow the Catholic faith. But God, the God who has created everything proposes to bring you into his very family, to be God as God is God, not to just be God with a euphemistic sense of us being brothers and sisters of God, our figurehead, but to share his divine nature completely. God's real plan is practical. He says to his family, kingdom, there will never be an end to its expansion. His plan is to continue adding sons and daughters to look and feel and act like him and who com are composed of the same self-generated eternal spirit he is forever. That's why the goal God has set before himself is a hope that uh, is fantastic. Endless, eternal, forever creating and ever-expanding family to enjoy and rule the great creation he's already made. There's no boredom in that plan, never a time when your interests will run out, no mythical religious sounding falderall about some spiritual never, never land where you do nothing forever, but an eternal job of creating, governing, problem solving with visible benefit. He has the power to resurrect you. And here's something the Worldwide Church of God published in Good News, March of 1982. The man dies, shall he live again? That's a quote of Job 14, 14. This should be a time of hope, because even if this world dies, and it shall, be followed by the resurrection of a new and a better world, a world at peace, a world of contentment, happiness, abundance, joy. God help us to comprehend not merely continuous existence, but the full, happy, interesting, abundant life, and that for all eternity. Now, eternity is going to be better, not just because the saints are turned from mortal to immortals, you can read in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It will be better because God's only going to change those who are willing to obey Him and build character so they can reign with Him. God, us looking at God of itself doesn't make eternity better. Now, we have a booklet called The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? go uh, into more depth about this. Again, available at the, this is available at the ccog.org website like this or the other ones I've held up. Now I want to go to first, excuse me, not first, Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Uh, starting verse 15. This is what something about Jesus. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And I'm going to go to Hebrews uh, 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he has also made the worlds, being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, were we created simply to look at uh, Jesus for all eternity? No, that is not the hope of salvation. According to Jesus, John 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He's teaching he came so he could have a better eternity and that we could help make eternity better. Uh, God did not create humanity uh, for the purposes of him staring at him for all eternity. God's not vain. Job 14, uh, verse 15 says, you shall call and I will answer you. You will desire the work of your hands. Every human being is work of God's hands. He's got a plan for everyone who will properly respond to him. It involves doing a work to make eternity better. We in the Continuing Church of God teach that God made humanity in order to reproduce himself and be part of his family, consistent with, say, Malachi 2.15. He made us to share in his glory and to rule the universe, it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus taught in Acts 20-35, it's more blessed to give than to receive, or there's more happiness giving and receiving, as it says in the New Jerusalem Bible. God made humanity in order to give love, and so there'd be more love in the universe. The Father sent Jesus us uh, all of that, all, all but the incorrigible will be saved. We, the Continuing Church of God, believe that God made humans so each could give love in a unique way to make eternity better for ourselves and everyone else. How do we do this? By living by faith and obedience in this life. Christians themselves will later be changed and perfected at the first resurrection in order to love better and make eternity better. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Apostle Paul called this a mystery. And those who are currently not Christian, not true Christians, will have this opportunity after the resurrection. I want to hold up uh, uh, two books about this. One, Universal Offer of Salvation. This talks about uh, God's plan is not just for us now, but those who will be called later. But the one that talks more about plan for us uh, is also called uh, The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? Again, these are available at the ccog.org website. There's a lot of people do not understand God's purpose and what God's doing. What about immortality? What about heaven? In uh, Ezekiel 18, verse 4, I'm going to read this from Septuagint, it says, All souls are mine, as the soul of the Father and also the soul of the Son. They are mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. Or, so it says it'll die. In Ecclesiastes 9.5, Septuagint says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And Jesus said, uh, in John, 
no one has gone up to heaven except uh, the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. That's from the New Jerusalem Bible. So according to Jesus, people like Moses, Enoch, Elijah, Abraham did not go to heaven. Now I want to read something from the Roman Catholic Saint Hippolytus. He wrote, The father of immortality sent the immortal son and his word into the world, who came to man in order to wash him with water and the spirit, and, and he, begetting us again to incorruption of soul and body, breathed into us the breaths of life and endued us with incorruptible panoply. If therefore man has become immortal, he will also be God. And if he was made by God by water and the Holy Spirit after regeneration of the layer, he's found to be joint heir with Christ after the resurrection of the dead. So Hippolytus is clearly teaching here that you're not immortal now, but after the resurrection you will be. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, uh, uh, 15 and 16, about the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal or who has immortality. I mentioned 2 Clement before. Again, it's not part of the Bible. It says... Uh, chapter 14, verse 5. So excellent is the life of immortality which this flesh can receive as its uh, portion if the Holy Spirit be joined to us. Now I want to read something from uh, Dustin Martyr, who's considered a saint by the Greco Roman Catholics. For a few fallen in with some who are called Christian, but who say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. Do not imagine they are Christians. Early Christians did not teach humans had an immortal soul, and they would go to heaven upon he died. Justin also specifically taught that souls were not immortal. Uh, the idea that humans could not die as they possessed immortality was, according to Justin Martyr, believed by false Christians who descended from Justin, uh, for, excuse me, from Simon Magus. And he, he quotes some stuff about Simon Magus coming up with this. So it was a pagan concept. Now, there were certain apostates and various Greek philosophers and false documents in Mithraism also taught immortality and going to heaven, uh, as well as uh, a frying forever. The reality is such teachings are not in the, the New Testament, and nor did early professors of Christ teach this. Now there's something that's commonly called First Clement, which was actually a letter from the Roman Christians to uh, the church in Corinth. This is late first century. It says, Day and night declare to us a resurrection. The night sinks to sleep, and the day arises, the day again departs, and night comes in. For this reason, therefore, inasmuch as they obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those already mentioned, and afterwards gave instructions that when these should fall asleep, or that when they die, others approved men should succeed them in their ministry. For it is written, Enter your secret chambers for a little time, until my wrath and flurry pass away, and I will remember a propitious day and raise you out of your graves. So death was portrayed like sleep, and the resurrection was taught by true Christians, and we, the continuing church of God, still do that today. Theophilus of Antioch, who's considered to be a saint by the Greco-Roman Protestants, as well as by the Church of God, wrote, For if he had made humans him immortal from the beginning, he would have made him God. Neither then, immortal nor yet mortal, 
did he make him, but as we've said above, capable of both, so that he should incline to things of immortality. Keeping the commandments of God, he should receive as reward from him immortality. As far as the commandments of God go, I meant to hold this booklet up before when I was talking about idols and icons. We have a booklet on the Ten Commandments, and true Christians should keep them. This also goes into how people reason around them, uh, both from how Protestants do it and basically how Greco-Romans do it, even though they profess keeping them. So anyway, Theophilus, uh, who's considered a saint by professing Christian groups, said, you're not immortal. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia teaches, the doctrine of immortality received its complete philosophical elaboration from St. Thomas, according to Aristotelian theory. Now, the Aristotle was pagan pre-Jesus time, pre-Christ. Aquinas holds that we can prove the fact that the world's soul's conscious life when we separate from the body based upon Aristotle's theories. Okay, so it's not based on the Bible. And we're talking 13th century here with Thomas Aquinas. I think it's when he was around. Yeah. Now, I found something I got from the Biblical Archaeology, Archaeological Society this spring. And here's what it says. The Apocalypse of Peter, the first Christian writing to describe a journey through, through heaven and, and Hades. But the Apocalypse of Peter is a fake second century document. Peter didn't write it. It wasn't written by Peter who died in the first century, nor any real Christian. Yet, many accepted a version of what it declared. It's not a Christian writing. Okay, you can't say, okay, now, my name is on here, it says I wrote this. Now, if I put down that Peter wrote this, I would not be a true Christian, because Peter didn't write this. Now, he, there's a few quotes in here from Peter. Okay, but Peter didn't write this. But if I said, this is a mystery of God's plan by Peter, or something like that, that's false. It wouldn't make it a Christian document. It would be a false document. So the Biblical Archaeological Society should not consider the Apocalypse of Peter to be a Christian document. It's an apostate document. Anyway, this false Apocalypse of Peter has various things about the punishment of the unsaved. It says, And over against that place I saw another squalid place of punishment. Those who were punished there and the punishing angels had their raiment dark like the air of the place. And there were certain there were hanging by the tongue. Certain of them were hanged by their tongue. And these were the blasphemers of the way of the righteousness. And under them lay fire burning and punishing them. And then there was a great lake full of flaming mire in which certain men that pervert righteousness and tormenting angels afflicted them. You know, I kind of wonder if... Uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, where he, he, he talked about uh, punishment, if he got it from this, because this is basically what uh, uh, Greco-Roman Protestants tend to teach. Anyway, they talked about women have their hair hang, being hanged by their hair, and the mire that bubbled up uh, for those who adorned themselves for adultery. And then the men who mingled with them, now they were hung by their feet, and their heads were in the mire, so their heads were in stinky stuff below there. And I didn't believe that I should come into this place. Then I saw the murderers and those who conspired with them. They were in a certain place that was full of evil snakes. And they were smitten by the beasts. And they were turning to and fro in their punishments. And worms, as were clouds of darkness, afflicted them. 
yes, documents like this, that you've got these modern ideas about uh, people being punished forever in, in Hades and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and as far as tying to paganism, a Roman Catholic priest wrote, wrote that uh, the resemblance between Mithraism, which is what Emperor Constantine and a lot of his soldiers uh, observed, and Christianity may be quickly summed up. Belief in the immortality of the soul, which early Christians did not believe, Heaven, which early Christians did not believe. So these are not ties to true Christianity. Even the late Martha, Martin Luther King Jr. saw those kind of things going on. Now as far as heaven goes, I want to read something from a, a one-time Anglican bishop and a 21st century historian by the name of Dr. N.T. Wright. Here's what he wrote. One of the central stories of the Bible, many people leave, believe, that there is a heaven and an earth, that human souls have been exiled from heaven and are serving out our time on earth until they can return. Indeed, for most modern Christians, the idea of going to heaven when you die is simply one belief among others, but the one that seems to give a point to it all. But the people who believed in that kind of heaven when the New Testament was written were not early Christians. So, in other words, people who believed this when the New Testament was written weren't Christians. They were called, quote, middle Platonists. Okay? These were Greek people, Greek philosophers who were not who were pagans, they were not Christian. He writes also, the followers of the Jesus movement believed the point was not for us to go to heaven, but for the life of heaven to arrive on earth. Jesus taught his followers to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. From as early as the third century, some Christian teachers turned to blend this type of with the Plato belief, generating the idea of leaving the earth and going to heaven, which became mainstream by the, by the Middle Ages. So they said it wasn't until the third century, a couple of centuries after Jesus was resurrected, that they started talking about the idea of going to heaven. Jesus' first followers never went that route. What then was the personal hope of Jesus' followers? Ultimately, resurrection a new and immortal body in God's new creation. But uh, after death and before a final reality, a period of blissful rest, Wright also wrote that what they were looking for was the coming kingdom of God and that they would live, try, strive to live a proper Christian life in this age so they could become part of that kingdom. And I'm holding up a book that we have called The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. It's available at the ccog.org website. Not only can you find it in the literature tabs under books and booklets, but if you go further down, you can find it listed in 100 different, over 100 different languages. If you or some loved ones prefer to read it uh, in other languages. Anyway, the modern doctrine of going to heaven upon death was simply not an original teaching. Uh, it was not what early Christians taught. Uh, uh, Christians taught the resurrection, that they would reign with Jesus for a thousand years when we returned. Uh, you can read about that in Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. And we, in the continuing Church of God, keep with that original Catholic belief until this day. And as I mentioned, the symbols on funeral, mark, funeral markings, such as this, uh, meaning chi or uh, for a thousand, or sigma, meaning the seven thousand, those were the type of things Christians used, and not really as, they, they weren't icons, but just sometimes be associated with their, with their, with their grave.
But sadly, because of the influence of pre-Christian Plato, false documents, sun god worshipping Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, many pagan ideas became adopted by the Greco-Romans, out of whom the Protestants uh, popped up. As far as the Protestants go, uh, there's one more book I was going to hold up, oh, which is here. We the Continuing Church of God are not Protestant. We have a book called Hope of Salvation. Uh, uh, so you can learn why we're not Protestant. It's a fairly thick book. If you're uh, willing to do research and believe the truth, you should want to read this. Anyway, in summary, early Christians did believe in tithing and tithes, and they gave offerings. They didn't wear crosses. They didn't have icons. They didn't have statues of Jesus. Uh, they, were, uh, they were not venerating Mary, they weren't lighting candles, uh, uh, they didn't venerate saints, uh, they were not going around confessing their sins to uh, priests, uh, they did not teach a beatific vision, uh, they understood that the purpose of God's plan is for Christians to make eternity better, and immortality occurs at the resurrection, and they believed in the kingdom of God. Hopefully you do as well, or you will as well. And again, uh, these are documented in various pieces of literature we have, such as what were the beliefs of the original Catholic Church, and why it's what's called Protestantism, not that original church. Uh, these books, along with your, your Bible, and looking into, checking out the facts of church history, will prove to you the truth, if you're willing. And hopefully you are. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the continuing Church of God.